and welcome to the Great Thinkers podcast, in which current fellows of the British Academy introduce the academics that have inspired their work and shape how we see the world today. For three decades, David Butler, FBA, was the BBC's go-to sophologist, covering every election from 1950 to 1979. Today, that role is filled by his former pupil, John Curtis, FBA. In this episode, the two colleagues discuss how Butler came to make his career studying and analysing elections. I'm John Curtis. I'm Professor of Politics at Strathclyde University and a fellow here at the British Academy. I've chosen as my great thinker Sir David Butler, who is widely regarded as the father of sophology in the UK. He, first of all, was the person who supervised my graduate thesis at Nuffield as a student. And he also gave me my first break on election television. I was sitting behind David during the 1979 general election, helping him to calculate the swings and otherwise providing rather youthful advice. This is the person who provides us with the intellectual architecture that we still use to understand how the electoral system inside the UK uh, works in practice, but also how voters behave and why they make their choices that they do. And it's Sir David who got us started in both those corners of the discipline. As you can see, the great count has already started. And all over the country, the ballot boxes are being rushed to the counting halls. The other reason, of course, why David matters is that he, together with Bob McKenzie, became one of the key faces of election television from the very first programme that the BBC put out on election night as the results came in back in 1950. And, of course, it's through that role that, above all, that David became known beyond uh, the relatively narrow world of academia. David Butler of Duffield College, Oxford, who's made a very exhaustive study of elections and all their forms. David, you can tell me who's going to win this one. Oh, ask me that in an hour's time and I'll be able to tell you. But now, well, I've never known a harder election to predict. David has recently celebrated his 94th birthday and just after his birthday I had the good fortune of being able to sit down with David at Nuffield College where he was based for many years and to interview him about his life and his work. David, it's lovely to have you here. Thank you very much for agreeing to do this. If you were asked to explain why you got interested in studying politics, what explanation would you give? Possibly I go back to 1924. I was born during the general election of 1924. My grandfather was standing for the obsolete London University constituency. He was in a lecture tour in America and my mother was running his election. So I never remember not being interested in elections. My first actual memory is standing outside the polling booth in the 31 election where my mother went in and voted. During the 30s, when I was a small boy, I was desperately interested in cricket and cricket statistics. Mm -hmm. Then the war came and there was no cricket. And I switched to looking at election results and spent a lot of time just reading through past election results and playing around with them. I went into the army and saw a little bit of blood and thunder at the Rhine crossing and then came back and found that a book was being written at Oxford on the 1945 election. And I was sent by my tutor to talk to a man called Ronald McCallum, who was writing this book. And he found a little bit about my background and said, would I produce an appendix for him on the statistics of the election? I produced quite a detailed appendix, which, when the book came out, got more attention than anything else in the book. And then the election came and McCallum was asked 
to do the television commentary on the election. And he said he wouldn't do it unless I could sit beside him because he was enumerate and I knew about the statistics. And I went and appeared on television on February the 23rd, 1950, and got really rather a favourable response. They come out again, up the other end of the room, up here, in the form of statistics, which nobody can understand except David Butler and his statisticians there. I hope I can understand them. It's my job. That started me for 29 years, being the BBC election statistician, before I was succeeded by a brilliant pupil of mine called John Curtis. <laughs> That's many years later, but anyway, uh, television in the 1950s is a different world. So, I mean, what was it like being in the television studio in 1950? How did it feel as an experience being in that studio and being on the first programme to give the nation the results as they were declared? I took it very much for granted on the whole, I think I was behaving in the studio as I would have behaved if I hadn't been in the studio, except in the studio I had fullest access to information coming into me. But I was really talking about things that I was really interested in, and I wasn't at all nervous. I've been travelling around the country for the last three weeks, and I certainly can report that the party officials on both sides quite genuinely expect to win but both sides expect a narrow margin. As for who is going to win, well, I think we'll know in 50 minutes' time. Election nights in the 1950s for the BBC became very much a duo between David Butler and alongside him was Bob McKenzie. Bob McKenzie was a politics professor at the London School of Economics. Bob also was the graphics person on BBC. But remember in those days, there weren't uh, any computer graphics. This was, you know, cardboard graphics. And although uh, the idea of the swingometer, which was perhaps the most uh, central graphic, is one that David originally developed and associated with, it was often Bob McKenzie who on air actually showed it. Bob McKenzie has behind him this vast scoreboard. I'm going to let you, Bob, explain what it does. Well, my job will be to look at the results in a slightly longer range view. David Butler will be seeing them as they come in, one after the other. And I'll be looking at the effect on the parties and leading... What was it like working with Bob? And, and how did you end up getting the division of labour between you that you did? It somehow came relatively spontaneously. I know the BBC people were rather worried because when we were having discussions in advance, Bob and I quite often fought quite hard on substance of the thing and they thought this was going to be very difficult. In fact, it was academic bantering of each other. Bob was relatively enumerate and felt that he ought to be totally in command of everything. But it was a very amiable relationship. I was very fond of Bob till he died in 1982. One of your jobs as somebody working with an anchor person, I know from personal experience, is you have to feel when things go wrong. So when did things go wrong and how, how did you deal with it? I don't remember things going wrong. I mean, it did go wrong, but I don't remember getting worried. It was all rather fun. Uh, you clearly have had better experiences of television than I had. In a few moments' time, the polls will close all over the country and at 10 o'clock, the start of what could be one of the most most dramatic and exciting election night since the war. At the 92 election, famous for all sorts of ways, and I guess with the benefit of hindsight, we'd rather foolishly set things up that we would shift from where we'd been working into the studio just before five to nine when we went on air, and that it would be in the studio that we would transfer to the graphics people, the final forecast from the exit poll. At 10 o'clock, we'll bring you our exit poll, our prediction of what we think has happened. Well, shall we say that once we got into the studio, 
the connections didn't quite work as they were meant to. I can still well remember Peter Snow screaming at me, have you got it, have you got it? And it was literally with 60 seconds to go before we were coming on air, before eventually we managed to get the connections to work and the exit poll forecast was in the system. Let me take this pendulum right back to the centre and just forecast for you the way our exit poll suggests that all these seats are going to go. And watch the regional pattern. Watch those blue MPs. This is what our exit poll suggests will happen to those 94 crucial seats. There they go. One of the biggest things I think I did as a contribution to British politics was in 1958, collaborating with Bob McKenzie and Anthony Benn, I convened a conference here in Nuffield and managed to get incredibly influential people there. That's to say, I got the director generals of BBC and ITV. I got my cousin Rab, who was deputy prime minister at the time, and Hugh Gateskill to attend, and Joe Grimmond to attend. And we talked for two or three sessions here in Nuffield about how you could liberate politics. And at first, the BBC and ITV people were rather po-faced and rather shocked at the irreverent view that Bob McKenzie and I had about the whole thing. And then Rab suddenly said, well, I think you should have more buccaneering. I think we should change the thing. And he destroyed the whole atmosphere of the meeting. And we went ahead and argued for a lot of the things that were manifest in the 1959 election. Very difficult here, trying not to give too much optimism to one side or to the other, as the results yeah, yeah. seesaw to and fro. You had competitive encounters on the air, and that was exciting. It was also an exciting election because quite early on, it looked as though there was a swing towards the Labour Party. First broadcasts went down very well, but then it changed, and in the end, the Conservatives got back with an increased majority. And there was the question of what had happened during that election. I think that's the most positive intervention that I have made in British politics. OK, so the fact that we now have our politicians connected via some form of media or another, it goes back to 1958. And that, at that point... The eye of the world is constantly following our party leaders and what they're doing in a way that previously they hadn't. Yeah. Of course, now the actions and the words and the grimaces and the mistakes of politicians are rapidly disseminated. And it's the 1959 election is the election at which that transformation begins to happen for the first time. How do you think you perhaps succeeded in getting politicians to tell you things that maybe they would have preferred not to say? My real experience of interviewing was when I was in America in 1947-8, when I hitchhiked around America, and I spent three months hitchhiking. I had 153 lifts, I remember making notes, and I wrote a diary about it. And I always would ask some questions about the local politics. I was very conscious that I was a guest in the driver's car, and I didn't want to have any trouble. I never had any battles with my hosts. They picked me up because they wanted to talk, they wanted company on a lonely drive across the American continent. And that taught me a lot about interviewing, not in a kind of conscious study of interviewing, but just simply being experienced in talking to people and getting them to answer questions. And I don't think I had much technique. I just was doing what I enjoyed doing. Personally, I play the game differently. I, I almost don't want 
particularly to talk to politicians because I'm interested in trying to explain to politicians what the public thinks and I'm more interested in doing that rather than being told by politicians what they think the public think and I don't in a sense want necessarily to have my views coloured. Now that said, inevitably, not least because of my role in television, shall we simply say, you know, the green room is an occasion in which one can have an interesting and sometimes illuminating off-the-record conversation with a politician. But that's the result of accident, not necessarily of desire. So you started off, as it were, first of all, making your name by studying election statistics. You then go on to study elections. But then there's a third chapter, of course, which is actually advancing the study of individual behaviour. And you invite um, Donald Stokes, who had been one of the people responsible for the American voter in the 1950s, which is the first nationwide study of voting behaviour being done by academics. So what led you to the conclusion that this really was something that should be replicated in Britain and and what was it like working with Donald Stokes and somebody who as it were who'd been involved in this very different way of quantitatively studying voting behavior there was a great american book called the american voter published in 1960 And I happened to be in America at the time, and I went to an inaugural conference at which the four authors of this book were talking about what they did. And I asked, could one of them come over to England and help me do the same work in England? And then I I worked with Donald Stokes over 10 years, and it was an admirable partnership. He was the cleverest man I've ever known, and if there's any virtue in our book on British voting, is his. But my virtue was that I got the book published. He was a perfectionist and kept on wanting to improve on things and do further research, and I wanted to get on with my life and end the thing. Butler and Stokes' publication, Political Change in Britain, very rapidly became the Bible of British sophology. And it had some very important things to say about how and why voters behaved as they did. Crucially, they were saying voters, frankly, do not spend a great deal of time looking at the details of manifestos and then voting afresh at each election for whichever policy platform they think is closest to their own. Rather, they suggested that politics was much more a part of their identity of how they thought of themselves. People put a mark against a Conservative or against a Labour candidate, even though they're not necessarily that happy with this party at this point in time, but because of their long-term loyalty and their sense of who they are politically. Back in 1983, you wrote a book called Governing Without a Majority. Perhaps it was 30 years before its time, but why did you write that book and what would you say we should have learnt from it that maybe politicians today need to take notice of? The party system in Britain seemed to be in revolution. Social Democrats had come into being as a party and then done their deal with the Liberals and for a moment we're getting 50% of the vote in polls. But it was a time when one was thinking about 
possible fundamental realignment of British politics and made one wonder what is the glue that keeps people loyal to parties and makes us have a two or then a three-party system. But how the three-party system worked made one write what government was majority because that seemed to be a likely thing to happen. But then the Falklands War occurred. Mrs. Thatcher got great credit from this. Suddenly it dissolved. In the end, we didn't have a hung parliament in 1983, or indeed not in 1987 or 1992 or whatever. But of course, more recently, we've had to get used to them. So although, as it were, for 30 years, David's book was perhaps something of a dry, dusty tome, by the time we got to 2010, this became an important contribution. It may be that Nick Clegg should indeed have read Sir David's book. What would you say was your biggest achievement? I suppose initially was getting people to think statistically about elections. I am not, as you know, a statistician. I'm not highly qualified. I applied simple arithmetic and percentages to election results and produced a much more orderly picture of what was going on nationally than was previously available. What would you say was the biggest mistake you made? I'm in danger of sounding terribly complacent. I have... No regrets. I've had a happy life. You question me as though I was somebody who had a planned life. My life is not planned. It's been accidental. I've done things. I've enjoyed myself. Felt the challenge of trying to answer contemporary questions. David started an intellectual endeavour, which the truth is, is just absolutely central to the way in which virtually any academic who's interested in natural studies operates. And there are academics out there now, starting off in their 20s, who will continue to owe to David the fact that they can do the work that they can do because it was David who realised that this was something we should be doing. One of the other things we're now saying in 2017 is there may not be many people out there who say, I am Conservative, I'm Labour, but we've suddenly discovered there are a very large number of people out there who go, I'm a Remainer or I'm a Lever, and have a very strong emotional commitment to one or other of those two causes. So all of a sudden, of course, we're back to the politics of identity of which Brexit is part, and we're all of a sudden seeing, the, in some senses, the restoration of the world that David was writing about 50 years ago. So David Butler, the father of British sophology, thank you very much indeed for uh, talking to us today. It's really wonderful. Thank you very much. Thanks for listening to this podcast from the British Academy. To hear more like this, you can subscribe on iTunes, SoundCloud or your own podcast app by searching The British Academy. To find out more about the work The British Academy does, including upcoming events, please visit thebritishacademy.ac.uk.